never been a better time to join a trade union because so much has been exposed. Like you know, and if you're not organised in your workplace, then you you know you're going to be in real trouble. Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to Rona McCord. Rona is a long-time activist on the left. She's been involved in militant, in union activism, the United Left Alliance, and a number of campaigns, including Right to Water and Right to Change. She currently works for Unite in strategic research, community development and communications. She also has a doctorate from TCD for research into the post-World War II suburban development of Dublin. We'll be talking to Rona about her political background, the Right to Water and Right to Change campaigns, and the challenges for the left and trade union movement in the contemporary period. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please do subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the Irish Left Archive website at leftarchive.ie, or you'll also find us on Twitter. So thanks again to Rona for joining us, and thank you for listening. I was on um, your website and had a look at uh, the, the archive, and I had a little listen to the, the three, four, I think, um, podcasts that you have up there so far. And mm. I was listening to Conor, Conor Costic this morning. Um, and it just struck me that we had a few things in common in terms of um, politics and actually family background. Since he's from really? Cabra, or his, family, his family are from Cabra, and um, I think they moved, or one of us, either his father or his mother was from Cabra and, and married a, an English person, and that's how he was raised there. And my my father, father and mother actually are from Cabra, but my father's sisters would have um, emigrated to the UK as well from Cabra, and um, part of Part of their emigration kind of affected me in that they went to Yorkshire and they both married minors um, in, the, in the early 60s, around the time when a lot of women, single women in particular, were leaving Ireland. Mm. Um, there was quite a high amount. I think it's, at one stage there was a lot more women emigrating than men. Um, and I think a lot of that was social reasons rather than economic ones. Mm. And, um, but my two uncles were involved in the miners' strike in, in the 1980s. Wow. Um, which would have had a huge, a huge effect on me. The whole period did as well. Probably a lot of people from my generation would say the same. Um, that, uh, you know, if I was to pick one person who politicised me, it was probably Margaret Thatcher. Um, because yeah. of um, the strikes and the, the minor strike um, and a lot of anti-Irish sentiment, I think, was probably um, the thing that made me aware of social injustice sort of injustice and racism and racial hate towards Irish people which mm. was in the mainstream media if, if you, you probably remember yourself it wasn't strange to turn on mainstream TV and hear anti-Irish jokes and yeah. anti-Irish comment, commentary on the news you know and in, in, on TV productions and so on like so you know, I think that was one of the things that kind of what's going on here why, why, why are we being singled out why are we different why, why are we subject to this prejudice mm. so you know it just struck me listening to connor's uh, so, podcast that we had some of that in common so where did you go then like what was your first protocol then politically um it was the labor party the irish labor party ah okay well well typical historian you know i took a wider view and uh <laughs> i just thought you know the, the party of Connolly and larkin surely that's where i should be yeah so that's what i i, I, I joined very young um I think I was around it before I was able to join it because you had to be 16 to join. Mm. So uh, I got involved in that. I think I canvassed in the divorce referendum, even though I was not a member of the party. Mm. Uh, that would be my first political activity, though. It was around that. 
which was, uh, I remember being <laughs> heartbroken, really, that it yeah. didn't pass. And I mean, not understanding it, you know, just kind of going, but, you know, this is, this is logical. Why is this not passing? Why do people have these attitudes? And sort of having to learn that afterwards, you know, the whole history of repression, I suppose, and the, the, the tight hold that the Catholic Church had in, on the Irish state and the Irish and Irish people. And through, particularly then, you know. amazing even now, looking back. Yeah, it is, yeah. And I mean, when I look back at it now, um, and I look further back, and that's probably the historian in me as well, I, I, look, to, I look to Noel Brown in 1952 um, and the Mother and Child Scheme, and, and I think that's where it changed. And I suppose a lot of people who were ahead of that change were quite frustrated that it didn't happen quicker, you know. Yeah. But if you step back and look at it in a historical um, perspective, it actually kind of was quite quick, uh, from the 1950s up to 2018, I think, was it? When um, the repeal, repeal um, really sort of, I think, finished the deal there, really, in terms of the power of the Catholic Church and, and that and sort of question of women. And I guess even 10 years from divorce, for all... It was, over, it was over 10 years, wasn't it, really? Was it, hold on, divorce was 86. Yeah, well, wasn't it? 86 to... Yeah. Was it 90, 82? So... Uh, 96. 95, 96. 86 was the... Was the original one, was it? 86. Yeah. And so in the Labour Party, which you joined under false pretenses of being older than you really were... <laughs> Like well, 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 they they got me in under false pretenses that they were a socialist party, but they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened then? Like you, you, you're, you're, you're working with them, and you're working as part of them, and you, I presume you become a member at some point. Yeah, I did become a member. Yeah, and it was quite um, big, I think, um, in terms of uh, numbers in in Dublin North Central, and mm. um, there wasn't a TD there. I remember when I joined, and I don't think there was one when I left either. <laughs> Um, they were very, you know, they they were. I think when I joined, they were on like two percent, something really, really low. Wow. Um, and um, I left before the whole spring tide thing, so uh, it had been it had really been struggling. But it was there was quite a lot of membership and some very good people, some really, really good people who who were in it, you know, and probably joined for similar reasons that they they, they felt that the party of Connie and Larkin is where they belonged, and it was mm. affiliated to the trade union movement. And, Mm. You know, in theory, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. But I think the the, the consistent approach to coalition uh, was really um, the thing that broke a lot of people. And certainly for me, it was it was that was the deal breaker, really. Like, um, yeah. Had you been had you been associated with any particular grouping within the Labour Party, or just? I mean, did you identify with any of them at that stage? Labour left or militant or? Yeah, I think I went in. Um, I went in. Through a neighbour um, who was a friend of, of the family. And there was a few um, people around the area who were friends with my mother and father who would have been quite progressive themselves and they, they never joined any political party, but they would have supported a lot of um, left-wing candidates. Mm. And I joined through one of their friends. Um, and then I pretty much quickly moved away from them and towards uh, Labour left and then moved further left again to what was known as the militant tendency back then. Mm. And uh, got probably burnt out after a while. It happens. Went back to being a civilian. So that was a period of time where you were in it and you're associated with militants and so forth. Did you then 
leave completely politics or did you still kind of knock around in those sort of circles for a while after? Like, I mean, I'm burnout, I think, happens with everybody in any case. And OK, it happens yeah. with some groups a bit more than others. But I would have I would have yeah. left political circles as such um, hmm. um, for a good, good while, a long time. I would have still attended marches and things like that. I yeah. would really have I did get involved in some stuff that local and, and campaign wise. Like, I mean, there was, you know, yourself, you're, you're, you're from up the road. Mm. Um, and um, things like the Stardust, you know, were yeah. some of the demonstrations around that, you know. Um, and, and the big demonstrations like the anti war movement, things like that, I would have still gone into. Um, but I moved into the print, print and, um, and joined what was the Irish Printers Union. Right. So, okay, so. yeah, which became the Irish Printers Group. Which then uh, part, became part of SIP too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that must have been an interesting transition as well. I mean, I mean, printing. Mm. I mean, there's a whole side issue of printing, and as printing as part of the left and the key aspect of it in terms of how we get the message out and who we. And yeah. was there any element of that, or was it purely like commercial printing that you were involved in at that point in time? No, it was. It was. Well, I suppose it moved a bit. Like, I mean, if you, if you recall, there was a very, very big boom in um, computers. Computers and home computers became yeah. sold to practically every household in Europe. Mm. And Smurfits had won a very, very big contract from Microsoft and probably a few others as well. And they printed basically all of the manuals and uh, the little guarantee forms that go oh, yeah. all the. the that went into the box was printed by Smurfits and they outsourced a lot of that work so they obviously won a big contract and then outsourced to a lot of the smaller places so there was a boom basically in printing because a lot of the commercial work then trickled down mm. into the smaller printing rooms so during that period it was a very good job and because yeah. I'm, I'm mostly unionized um, I, I don't think I ever worked anywhere that wasn't unionized mm. so the rates of pay were good um, the overtime payments were good, and uh, generally there was a bit of a buzz around it. It was boring work, as you probably know, looking at sheets of paper. But but um, there was a good vibe and a good buzz in it for quite some time. Like you know, and people yeah. were happy that they were making a good living out of it. You know, yeah. So I mean, I didn't print any political material, but I do remember one occasion when, if you recall, I can't remember the year that the legislation passed for incitement to hatred, mm. and there were certain um, things that you couldn't print. Mm. And uh, I recall um, one of the people that I worked with, one of the printers, refusing to print um, some, I think it was, I'm not sure which group it was, but it, but it was an anti-choice um, leaflet and it was pretty horrible to look at in terms of the wow. visuals that were yeah. on. Um, young children, toddlers, holding pictures of fetuses, basically. Right, yeah. And uh, I remember this chap going, I'm not with no way, you know, and he just stopped it. And, uh, stopped the print press. He actually didn't see it until it came off. He looked and went, what's that? Like, really? Off. The whole thing just with them? He just stopped, you know, and he, he went to the, the shop steward. a small enough place. Hmm. I'm sure he had an excitement hatred, you know. And he went to the boss who looked at it and agreed. So yeah, I don't think we should print that either. So it was sent back to whoever, whatever low life was printing it. Interesting. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so, like the union side, was was this purely in, this is purely inside the, the the company you're at, in a sense, or did you then begin to move further afield into like I mean, you know yourself, unions are an amazing organism, and I mean you work for one as you do at the moment, but I mean they're an amazing organism yeah. in themselves. Yeah, they kind of drag you into yeah. them. 
Well, they do. Yeah, they do and they don't. I mean, I mean, for some people, unions are just simply organised you in your workplace, you know, and mm. that's what the way a lot of people see it, that it's just an industrial thing that you join in your workplace and that's that's its role. Yeah. And other people see a bigger role in society and communities in terms of organising and educating and defending the gen, you know, your communities and your class, I suppose, as well as Absolutely. yourself in the workplace, you know. And I mean... Not all unions do that, you know, and not all people in unions see, see that as their role, but I I do. And I think that goes back to what I was saying about um, my listening to Conor Costic and, and the things we have in common with. Because I would have had an attitude about trade unions that came from the UK because of family and because of the minor strike. Mm. Um, when that strike was on and I, and I was a kid, I remember um, one night... Uh, knock on the door I was asleep and um, a, a load of English accents were downstairs right. and uh, a load of English men had come over on the boat miners and there was a very big collection um, you might recall in Dublin for the miners and yeah. that strike where they came over on the boat and they slept on the floor basically in, in my, my parents house to go on the collection the next day and um, I, I remember just thinking about that 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 was obviously an act of solidarity on, on behalf of my parents who's you know Absolutely. They didn't know these, you know. So it was uh, in that sense. I kind of, that's kind of where my attitude about trade unions come from. It, it's something more than just that for me. It's about solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's it's the two things. But if you don't have both of them, it's not really worth that much, is it? It has to have like for the the individual worker in their workplace, but and collectively, and then it has to be it has to have a vision. Otherwise, why is it there? It, it becomes a staff association. Well, yeah, yeah, and some of them are staff associations, and some people are happy with that because yeah. you know, and then that's what they want to, want to join. And that's you know, fair enough if that's their their attitude towards it. But it's not mine; it's never been mine. It's it's always been something bigger, and and I believe it absolutely has to be something bigger. But you, you can't be you have to manage your expectations around it as well because they're not revolutionary organisations, you know, exactly, and, and yeah. some think that they are or that they should be, and, and maybe they should be, but they're but they're not, you know. So you get a lot of people who who expect that you sh- you to do something. Why aren't unions doing something like this? And usually people aren't even members of unions. Mm, yeah, I've heard that one. So, yeah, but but it, it's it, it puts an onus on on you know, or it puts you in a place like you're you're either part of the state or you're some kind of charity or you have to be playing this. So there are people who believe you believe you have to be playing a role, you know, but they don't join one necessarily or don't understand the structure or the democratic process within the trade union. You know, it's not up to the general secretary of any union to say, let's go and do this now. You know, mm. there, are, there are democratic procedures that have to come into play, you know. And if you and if you don't tick those boxes in terms of democracy, then you're accused of being anti-democratic, you know. so Absolutely, yeah. I think there's some education needed about trade unions. So... Then you kind of like, you obviously moved back into politics at some point. Yeah, well, I, I, did, I didn't really stop, I suppose. I was always politicised and always in, in, involved and always attended the big things. So I was quite reluctant to get involved with organisations again um, because of the nature of some of them. Um, however, I haven't ruled that out for the rest of my life, mind you. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, no, I, I think at some point when you're young and when there's an awful lot placed on your expected to be to do in in organizations that um spend nearly every day of their lives doing this thing i mean you, you realize i think i realized at one point that i wasn't really living my life you know 
And um, so I, I, I backed off when I was around 21, 22. Right. And went to Brenton then, you know, and, and made friends with civilians and stuff like, you know, yeah. which, was, which was great, actually, because I had a political education, I suppose, and I was politicized. And I didn't, I brought that into the workplace with me and to, into mm. my French people as well, like, you know, and, um, and I think I, I affected it by a lot of people in that sense without, without selling them a newspaper or, or making them come to be, meetings, you know. Yeah. I think, you know, I sort of, when I went to uh, college, I had a car crash, actually. And um, I, I had a difficulty working because it's a, it's a physical job. Right? Mm. And I decided to go back to college. So that's where I went into Trinity College. Right. And I think, you know, probably became a little bit more involved in things there because there was there's societies and there's more discussion around politics. And we had um, uh, a campaign, quite a big one and a successful one, around um, this character whose name, I think, is Nick Griffin, is it? The guy from... The far-right guy in the UK. Yeah. BNP and... I said, oh, you know, to come yeah. over oh, to yeah. speak to the Phil, speak at the Phil. Um, and, the Phil. Um, the Phil, you know, who have a history of inviting far-right candidates in and, and calling it free speech. And, you know, so we got we had a quite a big campaign, which was cross-party, actually. It was enjoyable to be involved in, actually, because you got to work with people younger than me for a start. Um but a sort of wide selection of people who, mm. you know, from different parties. I remember even young Fianna Gael being involved in that campaign, saying no way, and um, they want them there. Um, oh, Labour Party, Socialist Party, everybody, you know, who was, yeah. you know, well, like, but not just, there was a lot of um, other societies who, like the Trust Student Society didn't want them there, you know, there was quite a lot of people. And um, that was very, very good because... Um, because of that broad um, group that got together and because it was successful and they had to say no in the end. Mm. Um, but it sort of, I think it kind of reignited my, my, uh, my love of a bit of political action. You know? Really? So is that, that's interesting. And, and then after, after that, how did it go? Because obviously, sorry, I should, what were you studying in Trinity at that point? History. History, yeah. Okay, yeah. You're doing history in TCD and what happens then? Um, well, I suppose what happened then was the economic crash in 2008. Um, was the the ULA, I think, kind of came around that time or after that. So I kind of got a little bit involved in that, um, hoping that the left would finally get its act together and act um, in unity, have some sort of unity of purpose. And it looked like that from the outside. And I think a lot of people were impressed or were hopeful. And I certainly was, so I got involved a little bit around that. Um, and uh, the rest is kind of history. I went to work in the Dáil then in 2012 in Claire Daly's office. Yeah. Um, and yeah. water and repealed the eight. Property tax first, and then water tax and repealed the eight. And uh, now I work here in Unite. Okay, so you've been through... and and. In that, like with um, Right to Water and then Right to Change, you were involved in both of those campaigns as well. It, to me, it's interesting with Right to Water because, like, that obviously was a really serious effort to try to um, build a very cohesive campaign, one that was very, very all-embracing, very wide, very, in the original sense of the term, very Catholic kind of universal kind of group of trying to get as many people in as possible, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And looking back on that now, how do you feel... the? What, I mean, do you have any observations on that 
now and and your own involvement in that as well looking back i suppose i've loads of observations and i think you know i probably will will have more again in the future as, as time passes um i think um it took a while i think that's the first observation it took a while from 2008 you know up until 2014 i think when that kicked off for mm. people to really you know get into that sort of battle mode um the the campaign around the property tax, I think, was an attempt to do that as well. And it certainly got people <coughs> involved and got people going. Um, and then it's sudden, I suppose, defeat by revenue kind of demoralized an awful lot of people. Um, mm. But I think that that, it, that it, a very serious layer of people remained politically active, demoralized or not, they were still there. And I think they yeah. were the real backbone. Some of them had, had a longer history in community activism and political activism as well. Mm. And you can see a lot of those people also got involved in the Greyhound strike. Yeah. Um, and they had developed certain tactics, which you could see in the water charges as well, a sort of slow marching um, scabs out of the states and so on. And you could see that kind of thing happening as well in the states when, when Irish water bands were marched out as well. Like, you know, mm. so um, I think... You see some of it as well in the repeal campaign. You see that sort of it's a similar um, community-based campaign. I think that's really the, the, the real reason that they were very successful, I think, was because they were community-based mm. and because people um, were not, were not um, going to be led by politicians or political groups. They had their own ideas, you know, their own tactics, um, and their own autonomy, I suppose, and they, and they rejected an awful lot of people trying to push them around or corral them into um, one tactic or whatever, like you know. And that was great to see. I thought that was great to see, you know. Um, but I think part of what, what I, if I if I had a wish list, I, w- I wish it would have that network could have stayed a little bit stronger and tighter together, mm. and had a little bit more political education, or actually a lot more political education going on. But, you know, these things come down to resources as well. I know you can be, we can be critical uh, of ourselves and it's good to be critical of ourselves. But at the same time, I think we have to give ourselves a break as well. We were probably in very new territory in terms of the numbers, I think. Yeah, surely. And the, the, the size of that campaign alone, the, the mm. stretch right across the country, rural, urban divide and, you know, all the rest. Like, um, you know, we were in a new space. So the yeah. amount that we could do was always going to be limited. Yeah. Um, so it, ourselves a break in that sense but, you know by the wish list you know i wish that certain things that had happened um or had yeah absolutely that that the idea of shifting that to right to change it didn't come off mm. and, um, and the idea with right to change if you want to go through that maybe and explain that well i think it was an, an attempt to transition uh beyond the, the single issue campaign um which you know was right i think to try and take advantage of that like we were talking about the size of the, of the campaign, like, I mean, it was, and just, you know, thinking about the, you know, your archive, um, and if you look at even the print, you could nearly have an archive just on right to water, um, mm. of the print material, the posters, the banners, you know, the, the banners that just kept popping up from different areas. Every time there was a march, there was there were literally hundreds of banners from all over, yeah. thousands probably, um, and, you know, people making their own posters and, um, some using the Right to Water logo. Not everybody used that logo. People had formed different groups um, and wanted to call themselves different things as well. But they all kind of came under that umbrella. Um, and I think that was that was the huge success of Right to Water was actually being able to 
um, create that umbrella, that space that mm. people could, that was relatively neutral and people could come in and campaign on the one issue. But, you mm. know, it, because we had one issue and one aim, it made it kind of simple, you know, made it easy enough. To, and, and the issue of water is obviously an emotional issue. And it's one that affects absolutely everybody. Um, and I think um, there were some brilliant things that happened um, in terms of education, for example. Like, I mean, I mean, in Fingal, which was the constituency that I worked in, um, we had meetings all over the place, week after week, in every area. Like, I mean, in some of the smallest towns, we'd have, we'd have public meetings. And they weren't all just simply public meetings. You'd have organising campaign meetings, public meetings. And then some educational events that we would have had. We had um, Conor McCabe come up to a few areas and sort of break down the details of what Irish water was, what it meant going off books, all this kind of detailed stuff that most people wouldn't be sitting in a, in a, in a room listening to. Um, ordinary people like who, who, who you know, had to get babysitters to come and listen to this. Like, so that, that stuff was very, very good. Um, and we followed that up with some stuff on TT. Um, I remember Lynn Boylan coming up to Balbriggan to speak on TTIP um, and she was really, really good. And a lot of people turned up to these things. We had the, the Detroit Water Brigade as well up in Balbriggan. who come over, I think that was the end of 2014, um, and, and um, they did a tour of country. And, and Balbriggan got them at something like two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Um, and surprisingly, um, it was absolutely jam-packed. You know, wow. the room was a lovely atmosphere as well. There was. Uh, a lot of people hung around afterwards. Um, I think we got we, we booked tea and sandwiches or something like that, and um, it was people stayed around. It was like a festival or something, like it was like a holiday. Like you know, it was really really nice. Um, so I think, you know, when you look at the scale of it and you look at what it was going on, the self organisation, mm. um, different groups that were um, getting getting themselves together and, and developing their own tactics and their own units, if you like. Um, and getting a level of political education around it, I think it was right to try and do something with that. Um, I hate using the word harness because it sounds like you're dealing with children or something or animals, but to sort of tap into it, you know, the, to, to develop it into something more, I think was the idea behind right to change. Um, and that instead of having one principle, you could have a list of 10. And uh, that's what worked came up with you know and it, it, it was done in a very democratic way uh, I mean, it involved the three pillars that had been involved in right to water which were the community-based people the political left i suppose the representative left in, in the doll and councils and then the unions and there were i think four unions involved at that stage um and they opened up a, a dialogue um an online um communication people could send in their, their submissions. I think mm. I wrote one. Um pretty sure I wrote one. Um, yeah. That's how the policies that the, they sort of narrowed it down to ten. And that's how they were developed, you know. And they were they were discussed and voted on in the CWU hall. Um I think I'm not sure of the dates now. I think it was the summer of twenty fifteen. Mm. Um and that's how that came about, like, you know, and I, I thought it was a very good exercise and it was a very good example of that sort of um, broader democracy that brought in you know, communities into the discussion around policy. I don't think any political party has ever done anything like that. Yeah, the, the, just thinking we've got the document in the archive, the Right to Change doc, and it's a, it's a good document and it's very solid. And as you say, it boils it down. Yeah, it is a good document. I think what's good about it, apart from the fact that people fed into it in a democratic and sort of transparent way and then voted on it, which was which was good, 
it also, you know, what we developed after that was a costed document. Um, I think Michael Taft um, had done the sort of that, that side of it. Um, so it was costed. There was nothing really radical in it either. Um, if you look at it from the perspective of, of Europe, of our social democracy in Europe, this is, there's nothing radical in it. You know, right to, right to education, right to a health service. You know, this is not radical. But in Ireland, it is. In Ireland, yeah. these things are radical yeah. because not had a social democratic government. We have not had any left parties in government with any influence. And therefore, you know, those social goods that are taken for granted in, in some parts of Europe, whether, you know, Scandinavia, Germany, France, or UK, mm. um, are, are, are like, um, you know, They're ridiculous. non-existent, yeah, here. Well, it's ridiculous to expect it here. That's the attitude that you get from, from the media and from right-wing politicians that you know that that's madness looking for a one-tier health system for universal health care yeah. you know this is something radical but it isn't i think that's what I, is important about that document that it's, it wasn't written it's not a, a big wish list of uh for a, for a socialist country it's it's just yeah what a lot of other countries have yeah yeah it's like it's like left social democracy to push maybe you know it's certainly not beyond left social democracy uh, in a way that was maybe strengthening it as well because like it was something that had a fairly broad appeal as well and it wasn't and as you say the it was, yeah it was quite successful in signing up uh, candidates then in the 2016 election mm. the number of parties yeah. wanted to to engage with it but I wondered if that maybe was part of I know Sinn Féin's involvement was problematic for the civil service union and was that partly what you know it was success in that sense but also was partly what damaged the campaign um, I don't know, to be honest with you. I haven't really sat down and thought about that a whole lot. Um, I think there was a number of issues. I think there's a lot of misconceptions as well around Sinn Féin's role or, or, uh, and other parties' roles in it or whether, you know, I think there was an overall arching problem in that there wasn't um, a real strategy to develop a structure from it. Um, and signing up parties to pledges is all very well uh, and it can be good in terms of if you, were, if you were going for the one thing like right to water that would have been very very effective but in terms of signing people up to a, a policy platform or principles either you're going to join this or you're going to you know all those parties have their own policies you know mm-hmm. so you know they can say yeah that's grand yeah but if we didn't have a, a, another strategy behind it and, and there wasn't at that stage then it really did it just petered out you know um but uh i don't think it's it's down to one party or another party at all I think it's down to a strategy really but I think as well like when it's it's the way we understand Irish politics is a problem as well the way the narrative around it and the perception of power because we perceive all power to be in parliaments in parliamentarians and political parties and um, so once we had launched something like that when that paper came out and the signing up and pledges came out people perceived this to be a voting pact because that's the way they see politics, you know, who's transferring to who. And there had been no such discussion, as far as I'm aware, around it, around right to change, about poli- about, about voting rights at all. But people just naturally saw it that way. So there was a misunderstanding, I think, um, on a grand scale, really. I think when you look back at, at the campaign itself around water charges, and if you look as well at the repeal campaign, that thing about building some power in communities which is why those things were very successful. It wasn't because of the politicians. I firmly believe it was very little mm-hmm. to do with them. But it had to do with those power bases being built in communities. They were kind of unstoppable. Um, and that's, in my, in my opinion, that's how you break that 
political narrative around power. And that's the only way I think you can break it. I don't think, you know, having, you know, a certain amount of seats or even a left-wing government is how you break power. I think the communities themselves have to break that power. And I think they've shown that in the last 10 years on two occasions, two very big occasions. And do you see, like, I mean, you know, not jumping ahead, um, but where would you see that going now? I mean, where would you see, not necessarily right to change, et cetera, et cetera, but, like, where would you see the landscape developing as things move on? It's very hard to see now, isn't it, with COVID? Because, first of all, none of us have a crystal ball. We didn't have one anyway. Mm. Um, But in terms of organising and building social movements um, and mobilising people, um, it's it's very, very difficult because we don't know when this is going to end Mm. um, or if it's going to end. Um, You know, if if it was a case that there was a vaccine um, developed, it would probably take another 12 months anyway. Um, And then you have a sort of reactivating people I suppose um, and things have changed and things are going to continue to change in around workplaces and jobs and we're looking at um, another round of austerity so on the one hand you could say look at I think people in Ireland are not going to take this austerity again mm. um, and I'd be confident that they won't and I think people will mobilize and um, I think people will put up resistance I think they know how and they know how to win mm. fingers crossed that's what that's what I see happening and hope will happen but I can't predict that because we just don't know. It's too uncertain at this point. Um, and obviously we have like a shambles of a government at the moment. Um, unlikely to be a general election. I know people are calling for one, mm. but I don't think there will be one um, in, in 2020 anyway. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, you have strange um, and nasty alt-right uh, and right-wing characters um, popping up using the pandemic, using, you know, their conspiracy theories and pseudoscience and and, um, and getting some traction, unfortunately. Um, because people just don't know. You know, there's a lot of unknowns out there. Yeah. And it, it's difficult to, it's difficult for, for us on the left, I suppose, to do the traditional work that we do in terms of organising, ha- having public meetings and public demonstrations, because we do a lot of our work in that way, a very public way. Mm. Um, and when we're not when we're not doing big gatherings, we're knocking on people's doors, you know. And um, we talk to people personally, um, so we're having to adapt. And I think we might have to continue adapting. So whether it's uh, online discussions or whatever, you know. But I think we have to look at other forms of whether it's civil disobedience in some manner or whatever, like because mm. we have, as you said, like I mean, we don't we don't know the full extent of jobs job losses or what they're going to be. Yeah. Um, that will have a knock-on effect on the trade union movement and density in the trade union movement. Do you, do you have a sense that there's the crisis is being used by some, this is slightly off topic in a sense, but do you have a sense from being positioned with inside the union movement that the crisis is being used by employers in certain circumstances as a sort of expedient kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, the the the, the brilliant work done in the last few years by um researchers on, on the issue of precarity um, uh, and the nature of the, the changing nature of jobs um, you can see the patterns there and you can see this race to the bottom and you know we identified this back in in 2008 I think you know and um, this race to the bottom um, hollowing out of, of good jobs the, you know basic the, the focus self-employment and all these practices mm-hmm. that were um, 
destroying good jobs, destroying that sort of uh, stability in society where people could afford to buy houses and, and so on, or could have a pension and that, those sort of things. Um, that's a pattern that has just been developing and developing and, and we, a lot of it has been exposed um, in the last few months that maybe other people didn't see. We knew it was there, obviously. Um, but you can see it in workplaces where somebody did wanted to get rid of somebody. Here's their excuse. Um, they don't want to hire the same amount of staff. Here's their excuse. We're, we're reducing the staff and so on. Um, but I think one of the main things that has become exposed, well, two main things have been exposed um, from our perspective. One is the uh, reliance on migrant labor um, and the out-and-out blatant exploitation of migrant workers, particularly in the farming sector um, and horticulture um, and also in, in the meat plants um, fisheries and so on, these sort of jobs. Um, and there, there's, a, there's a, a racial element to that as well, um, which, which brings out the ugly side of um, the, the right in Ireland. Um, and, um, you know, so we've, we've seen that going on. That's been exposed as well. And, and health and safety as well in workplaces has been exposed big time. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, well, we brought out a document um, in May called Hope or Austerity. Um, and, you know, we made a number of demands. And one of them was um, that, that trade unions themselves should be involved in workplace inspections. Because you have... Uh, you know, and this has been debated in the doll in terms of the personnel and capability of the HSA and the HSE. There's obviously, you know, confusion even about who's responsible mm. for what there. Mm. But there's also in terms of the, the numbers of people that they have to do inspections are very, very low. Um, and we've had quite a lot of reports and we've read loads in, in the papers and on social media of people saying that they've called for inspectors, they rang the HSA, they rang the HSE, and nobody ever comes to inspect their workplaces. And there's a dynamic in workplaces that people, that the mainstream media don't want to cover. When they say we have this box ticked because we have this and we have a workplace representative in charge of that and we have a HSA here, so it's all done. But the workplace dynamic in, in, in workplaces, you know, is tells a different picture because there are people who and say, look, a boss, um, I'm not happy with there being no soap in the bathroom. And that person may have no shifts now next week for signing anything or may, may lose their job for signing it. You just don't know, you know. And that's the thing that they don't want to recognise. And the reason why they don't want, want trade unions on their premises so, to uncover that. Like, what we had said was that there are layers and layers and layers of people in the trade union movement who do health and safety, who go on health and safety courses all the time and know their business. So why can't we utilise them? Why doesn't the state utilise those, those trained people to go into workplaces and give them the all clear? And surely it would have been better for businesses to get that all clear from the trade union movement because you know, people would trust it then to be better for their business. But obviously they don't want to. And this goes back to, you know, the 1990 Industrial Relations Act and the, the attitude towards trade unions in Ireland, which I think goes back further actually to um, the, the, the days of Archbishop McQuaid and that lack of trust, uh, that red scare um, sort of carry on around trade unions. Um, and that's really what that's about. And as long as trade unions are kept out of those places, those meat plants um, and so on, then that precarity you're talking about will be allowed to, to, to thrive. And it goes through the society. Mm. Do you think within workplaces with maybe more existing trade union membership that, I'm, I'm sort of looking for a positive here perhaps, but within the last few months that people are turning to the, to the union in a way that they obviously wouldn't have done, maybe weren't members or were members, but very passive and not terribly interested in, has yeah. 
that been your yeah, experience we, as well? We have an increase in membership, yes. Um, and so same in the, in the UK, like United is, is based in the UK and Ireland. Um, and there has been an increase yeah, in the last in the last number of months. But we don't expect that to continue increasing because there will be consequences with, with closures. You know, there, there will be job losses in British Airways and there already is big big workplaces, you know, which which we would represent. Um, so on the one hand, and we've been trying our best to get the message out that there's never been a better time to join a trade union because so much has been exposed, like you know, and if you're not organized in your workplace, then you you know you're going to be in real trouble. Like, um, and even on the basic issues around hygiene, yeah, believe it or sure. not, there's incredible mm-hmm. stories out there about the lack of hygiene and um, toilet facilities and so on um, in workplaces that have returned to work since lockdown and still not implemented or made these changes, you know. So, and the only way to get them is, is really to have a trade union to come in and say, look, I can't do this. You have yeah. to do this. Shocking. In a pandemic. Yeah. had pandemics before, you know, and mm. uh, they haven't. Hasn't uh, the, you know pulling on the green jersey? You know, it's, it's not real. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, the virus doesn't care. Yeah, there are mm. more opportunistic people out there than I, even mm. cynically, I had believed before. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's also self defeating in some ways. It's short sighted. Like it's yeah. um, you know, it's like um, go go back to water again. Mm. Um, you know, we we got water in in Dublin because the the. the the, the Dartry River or whatever was was diverted to give running water to the city centre through the slums, um, because the middle class and the upper middle class didn't want to catch disease after after cleaners, mm. after people who were you know servicing their whatever like you know, and uh, you know so the, it wasn't um, all about you know the poor the poor people need water it was about their own health as well and it's the same in a pandemic it's the same thing. Like, you know, and, and we argued this actually during Right to Water as well, that, you know, when people were sort of, well, I can pay my charges and whatever, why should they get it for free, which they weren't. But the point is, if, if your neighbours lack basic hygiene, then the chances of disease in your in your area are, are increased. And the yeah. disease, whether it's a virus or whatever, bacteria, whatever it is, doesn't recognise you as having a good job and have paid your bill. Yeah. No, <laughs> so same thing in a pandemic you know so and this is the issue around around workplaces why people are so horrified about the lockdowns in the midlands in, in the factories because you've treated these workers so badly and you know their conditions are so bad their their living and working conditions are so bad that that you're threatening the lives of everybody else because you know that it, it doesn't just say well i'm only going to infect people in this factory obviously that's not how it works so that's why people are, are rightly annoyed about um people in breach of of the regulations around it. I mean, these are left issues on every level, on the public health level and on the level of the workers in those factories and then the, and everybody else. It's it's amazing because you're really pulling all of that together into a single cohesive narrative, basically. But it's a narrative which doesn't get aired in the media Mm. at all. They're simply not interested in it, in in, in that framing of all of this for their own reasons. Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about our perception of politics and power in this country. The media have a similar uh, perspective and they, they, they help shape that as well. Mm. And, you know, we, we go into all sorts of details and gory stories about political characters. We love all that, you know, mm. um, but not what's going on behind it, you know. And listening to people on the news saying that Phil Hogan, he shouldn't resign because he's playing this role in Europe. But none of them have actually broke down what's going on in those negotiations in Europe and how it actually affects Ireland and how it affects the climate and climate change. Mm. You know, it's just so we need this big hitter in there for Ireland. 
but they haven't actually examined what what he's doing you know yeah so but but that's you know that's ignorance i suppose is bliss like you know people kind of when you get into the details it can be a bit depressing but it's very easy to gloss over on, on mainstream media because we go for the big story the big characters we've done it all through history i think you know the charlie hockeys and so on we're just more you know that's the way they, they it works look look at how much attention the, the, this current news story has gotten on, on social media and mainstream media if you turn on the radio and that's all we're talking about you'd almost think there's a diversionary element to it as well absolutely yeah definitely yeah. is yeah because i mean the issue for me that issue actually is is not about phil hogan you know i mean I'm, I'm, he's wrong and what he's done done mm. um mm. and they were all wrong in, in terms of the of the regulations they were wrong but the issue for me is about, first of all, I don't know how long you've been working in Bureaucracy, but uh, I was there for seven years and I don't remember any golf in society. I don't know where this came from. Yeah, it's completely um, news to me. This is the issue for me, not not just that golfing is a really boring activity, but why are, you know, the the, the division of powers here is the issue. Hmm. That these people are, are having their, you know, the, the judges and RTE presenters and, and top politicians um, and this whole little boys club or big boys club, whatever you want to call it. That's really, you know, it's the Galway 10th thing all over again. That's the story for me. Mm. You know, it's, it's not about in, individuals here. It's what, what, what goes on at these gatherings? What decisions are made? Who's getting away with something here, you know? And the networks that it represents inside the society is just, it's what you're saying there. I mean, even without naming names, the network between the media, between the judiciary, between the political establishments, both European and Irish, it's... It's a microcosm, of, yeah. It is, and and I think there's there has always been, for me, um, and for a lot of people, there has always been this bad behaviour of Irish politicians, of Irish TDs. I think we mm. expect it, whether it's Barry Cowan or, or whoever, you know, we, I think we just expect this kind of thing. And they behave like that because they have historically gotten away with it. There has yeah. been a, a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and things scribbled out. That, that never happened. That has gone on for a long, long time. So they kind of see themselves as a little bit invincible, a little bit above the law and above scrutiny. Mm. And it's because they have been. I think there's a sense in which it simply just doesn't occur to them not to behave in this way. I'm not sure. Not you know what I mean? Not to behave in that fashion because there has never been any reason for them not to. You know? Yeah, well, I, th- I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm a great believer and haven't witnessed them up close that that they they have this sense of empire. You know, no matter how small this little empire is, they believe it's their empire and that they're invincible inside that empire. Mm-hmm. And that that's the mentality. It's a culture that's there. It's probably been there for for very long time. It's the twenties. It's yeah. probably been there from day one, really. That they, they they see themselves as 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 very very special people, mm. um, and it all goes to their head, mm. and you know eventually the arrogance or the hubris gets them in the end. But it's horrible to watch. It's horrible to see people yeah. behave that way. Yeah, yeah. It's it. The problem is, it's almost like you want to detach so many things and deconstruct so many things inside that whole power thing because that has implications for the left as well. Yeah. Absolutely does. Like, you know, I'm a believer in the grassroots. So I think, yeah. you know, my mother was involved in adult education in Coolock in the mm. 1980s when they had to take on the the local politicians. I think it was Michael Woods was the Minister of Education and the, the local church and the local schools and so on just to get a classroom to teach literacy, um, which is something that we take for granted now. Mm. All the adult education that goes on in every school across the country happened because working class women beginning in, in Kilbarrick up where you're from. Clear, um, yeah. Yeah. 
part of that and, 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 and my mother was involved in Coolock, which came and it snowballed across yeah. class yeah. estates across the country, not just in Dublin. And we take for granted every school now has adult education, has literacy courses. And it took those women to go and fight for it at a grassroots level. And they met huge, huge resistance, but they won. And that change lasted, it's still there. So, you know, I firmly believe that that's, that's where you get the best and most lasting changes comes from the, from the grassroots. Big and not from somebody with a stroke of pen, I think I'll change that for you or do this for you. Yeah. It's when it's really fought for, you know, that's when it's... Because it needs that momentum behind it, because otherwise it's now, it'll be... It's the old thing. If it can be t- if it can be granted with a stroke of a pen, it can be taken away with a stroke of a pen. Exactly, which is why that that that's not the lasting change that we get in society. Yeah. We get it from the bottom up, you know. But yeah. I, I think you know you need. To be, what was lovely to see, I think, in water charges and repeal was that belief that communities had in themselves that they'll organise yeah. themselves, their own training, their own leaflets, their own public meetings, and away we go. You know that hasn't um, transferred largely into political circles or political life if you are elected representatives it has it has a bit yeah um but not but not as much as we probably need to kind of really challenge that power base there but i believe it's there in communities i believe that is there um and it's only a matter of time before people realize that actually these these seats and these positions aren't just for people in suits and ties or people with degrees Do you think, where do the unions come into this picture? I mean, where do the unions come in in terms of um, what role should they play in that, in in moving things on, do you think? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I suppose, look, Unite is a bit of a unique union in Ireland in that it has a political um, set of policies, political principles, and, and it's part of their rule book to engage politically mm. um, in society. Um, and that's written into, into our... our um, rules, you know, our rules and objects, um, and that's you know about creating an equal, unequal society, um, and creating a you know a better society for our class and, mm. and so on. And um, that's not the case for all unions. Um, unfortunately, the affiliation there's no affiliation to the political party, um, because of you know we were affiliated to the Labour Party and Labour Party's behaviour in coalition and implementing austerity was not palatable to our members, so they voted to, to disaffiliate. Um, so, you know, I suppose traditionally that Conley and Larkin thing about, you know, workers having a voice in, in industry and in the workplace and having a political voice was where that sort of connection came between the ITGW and the Labour Party back in the day. Mm. But the Labour Party has really let us all down very, very badly over the years, you know, and it did not become that umbrella organisation that was able to take in um, a lots of different opinions on the left and um, become something bigger than the sum of its parts and use that affiliation with the trade union movements to, to create something very progressive in society. Um, it didn't happen. Um, and that's kind of leaves us in this scenario that we're in where we don't have... Um, public health care and those, those sort of things that other countries have. Um, so where does that come from now? I don't know. Um, all I know is that it's clear that the two right-wing parties have gone from parties who controlled up to 90% of the votes to less than 50% of the vote online. I think that's declining. It's declined in the yeah. last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, very much so. Yeah. So what comes in and, and takes that place? I don't know. Um, probably a, a coalition of forces. Yeah. Um, so it's watch this space, really, just 
Watch the space, yeah. fingers crossed, and it looked the pandemic. Well. Very quickly, like, I mean, I wouldn't be pessimistic at all. Um, you know, if you, if you, the example of the, the property charges and that demoralization turned around in a matter of months mm. and became one of the biggest movements we've, we've ever seen. So, uh, you know, anything can happen. And um, the, the news these days is coming fast at us, you know, yeah. <laughs> by, the, by the minute. Like, so. Yeah. Just, just, I mean, just because we're kind of wrapping up in a sense, but you've you've taken the history side of things much further in a sense, but it's obviously been inflected hugely by your politics and your own research has moved. I mean, if you just want to describe briefly your own research and how how you think your own politics has inflected that. Well, it's that grassroots thing again, like, you know, that, that um, I looked at a period of Irish history around the late 40s and early 50s, around 57, that um, public housing was being built on a, on a mass scale, you know, something that we can't, we're alleged can't do now. And it was a, a far, it was just after World War II where resources were extremely thin on the ground, yet they managed to build incredibly big housing estates, incredibly, incredibly successful public housing across the state. So I looked at two areas in Dublin. Um, and I suppose I was looking not so much at the, the building or the, or the houses themselves, but at the people who populated them, where they came from, and how they organised themselves and what they thought of themselves, I suppose. And it was about kind of how people had their own agency. You know, in a lot of places... Um, Valley Fairmont, for example, people, you know, tenants associations were formed very, very quickly and they formed a co-op. Um, you know, they did an awful lot of stuff themselves. They organised, they had street committees in Valley Fairmont mm. organised them to, to sort of approach the, whether it's a councillor or the TD or the minister, you know, so the, the self-organisation was going on, quite a lot of it. Um, and I think it was happening adjacent to political organisation, you know, and, and I think we, we see that still happening that people can go and organise themselves. And I think it was, I was, I was looking at or listening to this narrative um, that I don't challenge about Irish history, that somehow um, we, you know, Sean Lamas and this opening up to the foreign direct investment and whatever was the thing that radicalised or changed or modernised Ireland. Uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, I think that's that, that what I was talking about earlier, this perception of power, that only these people are capable of doing this. But if you look into, down into the housing estates uh, and you see things changing, you see people getting organised, you see attitudes changing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, things like a developing a co-op is quite radical. So that's really what I, what I, was, what I was looking at. And I suppose my own politics does affect that because it's, it's very much class-based. Mm. It's interesting you should say that about self-organisation stuff because then you see that 20 years later in Kilbarrick, which again mm. is the newest new housing estates opening up and as you said like you see the development subsequent of clear but before that you see political activity through various different groups and through parties as well just sprouting up mm. because the need is there to address the social issues that are and, and economic issues that are facing people in their lived society all around them yeah i think people took it upon themselves to fill in the gaps you know to, yeah. to, to, to find out what the needs were in the communities and and they tackled them themselves you know and um it, that's that's about agency, and there's a there's a kind of a patronising sort of um, narrative that that you that you get an awful lot that that somebody's done this for your estate or done this for your area, and the politician comes around and says, "I got you this swimming pool," and it's, it's, people actually did it themselves, you know, to to a great extent. They really had to campaign for everything, and they gave up their time, um, and you know, they're, they're 
they weren't um, wealthy. You know, that was it was a hard time economically. And um, there was an awful lot of unemployment in the 1950s. And you saw, you know, people like the unemployed candidates and uh, Jack, who's the name, I can't remember, Jack uh, Ryan, oh, was it? Yeah, I'll come to, yeah, it's a Jack Ryan. But, you know, running, running in Dublin South Central as, a, as a, an unemployed candidate. So, you know, you had that sort of politicisation coming from the ground, um, which is very rarely written about in Irish history, to be honest with you, because we're, we're too busy looking at Sean Mass and the characters, you know, the big guys. Yeah, it's, there's a whole people's history out there, which is, I mean, you've addressed it, and there are other people, I think Mary Muldowney and other people who are addressing it as well, but it's like, it's it's ignored for the most part. And as you say, it's like, it's not the great, mostly men of history, it's it's mm. groups of people working against common challenges and, and going for it. Mm. There isn't even really good good histories of the trade union movement. There isn't, you know, a whole lot of stuff written about the ITGW, for example, which there should be an awful lot more. You know, in in the UK, you would see in in terms of their historiography, you would see an awful lot more um, social history, yeah. um, and oral history, and history of those big organisations. You don't really get it here, you know. And it's it's another legacy of of labour can wait that kind of attitude of policy, you know, and the national question dominating. <laughs> 